really successful leaders are those that are person-centred focused. So they have a really comprehensive understanding of their employees. They understand the individual needs of their employees and obviously their strengths and limitations. Welcome to Building Teams with Matt Nunn. As a coach and as a leader of 150 people, Matt loves to build and lead strong teams. From CEOs to professional athletes, join him as he has honest, candid conversations about how to cultivate strong teams. Proudly presented by Nun Media, Australia's largest media buying agency. Hello, and thanks for joining me. I'm Matt Nunn. On today's episode of Building Teams, I'll be speaking with Dr. Mandy Ruddy. Mandy's been working, researching and advocating in sport, well-being and optimal performance for over 15 years. Mandy is a lecturer in the School of Psychology and Public Health at La Trobe University. She has also consulted, collaborated and researched with the AFL, Beyond Blue and the Australian Institute of Sport, to name a few. Mandy is also the founder of Elevate, which creates tailored well-being and performance programs for individuals, groups and organisations. When she's not teaching, training, consulting, or researching, Mandy is busy with her three children. Hi, Mandy. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Matt. Listen, first of all, probably just like to discuss, you know, your upbringing and, you know, from an education and whether there's any key people that sort of shaped who you are. So my upbringing, I was born and bred out in the eastern suburbs, which is where I still reside now. And I attended Carey Grammar throughout my school education, which I absolutely loved. It was a, a school that gave a lot of balance, both academically, sportingly. And that was me, pretty much. I was a semi-professional athlete. I was a swimmer growing up. Oh, okay. so. Early mornings. Early mornings, many of them. So we did 10 sessions a week following that black line up and down the pool. You know, it was a part of my life that created a really strong foundation for different areas with respect to sort of time management, building relationships, motivational aspects as well. So I reflect on it in a really positive light. I'm not sure my parents would think the same. 5 a.m. starts. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It was in that sporting space that really highlighted to me some really instrumental people, whether that be from the sports coaching world, a number of coaches that I had worked with, one which I have reconnected with today and I'm working with Bill Nelson, who was a, a national and Olympic swimming coach. I've got really strong connections too with my then sports psychologist, Anthony Clarica, who's a performance coach. He was the performance coach in a number of AFL clubs. Yeah, just through, through my connections in sport, I've come across some really instrumental people. What's your area of expertise and have you got a certain focus with your research? So my research area has focused on wellbeing and it's specifically been in high-performance sport It evolved many years ago, obviously, my love and passion for sport, but also my passion for education and learning. And as I was studying, I was enrolled in a PhD at La Trobe University, and I was actually investigating an area of interest that was obviously going to to keep me motivated for a number of years. And what I identified was that an area that was lacking was in relation to the psychological aspect of injury in sport. Unpacking that and looking into the literature, there'd been a lot of research done with college athletes, international athletes from other countries, and there was limited research that had been undertaken in Australia. When I looked into that further, I was actually quite surprised that no research at the time, which feels like a long time ago now, had investigated this in a sample of AFL footballers. 
And so I thought, well, that's my target area. I need to start investigating this gap in the literature with a cohort of AFL footballers. And that sounds all very fancy as I speak about it openly. But for me, I didn't follow football growing up. I was based in Melbourne, didn't follow an AFL team. So it was a really unique experience for me to embed myself into the AFL culture. And my, yeah, my research set up a really strong foundation. And then, then I spent sort of 15 years in the industry. So I noted that you've worked with the AFL Coaches Association as well. Have you consulted to coaches that have fired or sacked? What type of advice or role do you take in that situation? I was with the AFL Coaches Association for 12 years and that spanned from developmental programs to information education and then in the latter years, mental health and wellbeing. At the time when I was in that role, there was 180 AFL coaches, senior and assistant coaches, and clearly that industry is very highly profiled. It's highly scrutinised. The media can make or break a coach's career and there are a lot of other external factors that can play a significant part in the well-being of a coach. So what we identified um, under the guidance of Mark Brayshaw, who was the CEO at the time, we felt it was a really important area to be looking after the coaching cohort. So what we established was actually a psychometric measure that measured the mental health and well-being of the coaches annually. We put together psychometric measures that looked at depression, anxiety, stress, general health and job burnout. And we measured coaches um, four times a year to identify highly stressful times in the season. And what were those times when you've lost three games in a row? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very stressful times, obviously, when when you're not winning. We do know that it's, you know, a a win-loss environment, but more so towards the end of the season. Contracts were generally short in, in nature and that that high turnover with coaches um, that we would see around the the August-September period. So obviously those variables would increase at that time of year. When we talk about leadership, often the focus on reaching goals as opposed to nurturing people in the process, what can today's leaders do to help manage the mental health of their colleagues while working towards their goals? Great question. And I feel as though the COVID pandemic has actually exasperated those roles of of leaders in the workplace. But what I feel as though we're seeing now are really successful leaders are those that are person-centered focus. So they have a really comprehensive understanding of their employees. They understand the individual needs of their employees and obviously their strengths and limitations. I also feel as though great leaders are those that can collaborate really well. So they understand their limits and their limitations. And a great quote that I like to use, and I've used it in my team, is that great leaders are not the best at everything. They find people who are the best at different things and they get them all on the same team. And I think that's a really, really powerful message to leaders of today. Occupational stress is a huge issue in all workplaces. What can workplaces do to support their employees and ensure they don't suffer from job-related stress? So stress and burnout are two variables that have been a result of the pandemic. And I guess in the sporting space as well, that can be exasperated. But what we noticed during the pandemic is that our work environment became our home environment. Our home environment became our workplace. We were disconnected and isolated 
for many families in Melbourne, obviously the, the homeschooling factor played an instrumental role in, in stress as a society. But I feel as though, I guess from an organisational perspective, what employees have started to realise and understand as we start to emerge out of the COVID pandemic is various aspects that can be reflected on in a positive light as a result of COVID and Now, to try and avoid occupational stress and burnout, we see organisations that are trying to implement that work-life balance or what I like to call a work-life interaction. I don't think balance is ever appropriate there and it can be very challenging, but sympathetic and empathetic workplaces are now more flexible. So they offer various services to their employees. They offer more information. It's obviously been discussion about a four-day work week, changes in relation to to parental care, etc. But I feel as though those organisations who are evolving in this area are those that are very person-focused. So they focus on the person as opposed to the process. So, so you mentioned burnout is becoming very rampant in many different industries due to the pandemic. What are some of the red flags of burnout and how should people look out for that? Great question. And I think it's one that we all need to, to understand. So burnout actually involves three different variables, that being emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, which is the disconnect from your role, a person, a colleague, etc., and personal accomplishment. So When these three factors start to decrease, then we start to see the signs and symptoms of burnout, and that could include physical tiredness, lacking energy, sleep disturbances, whether it be too much sleep, not enough sleep, difficulties concentrating, mood swings, irritability, etc. But it also involves like a lack of personal satisfaction in the achievements, whether that be personally or professionally, getting trouble started and lacking motivation. So if you are suffering those symptoms, what should you do? I guess from the research that I've looked into and what I've seen in everyday life, it's really important just to take a pause and have a conversation with someone about how you are feeling and whether you feel as though you're coping or not coping in that area. And that might start with a conversation with your boss, with your GP, with your partner, And really reflect on the areas that you feel you are languishing in and also reflecting on the areas that you feel that you are flourishing in as well because we have to try and find that that balance. Could you share some examples of what great workplaces that are displaying the wellbeing process, what do they look like? What do they look like? They have an open line of communication. They're very collaborative. They're obviously employee-focused. The leader of the organisation, I feel as though, usually leads by example. So if that means, you know, there are times in the day where it's IT down or it is lunch break, the leader of the organisation is setting that example. What we do see now too are organisations that offer various services during work time. Like what would be some examples of that? Oh, some great examples that I've been privy to. Head, neck and shoulder massages during work time. General activities not necessarily in the lunch break, but just activities that can increase the mood or vibe. Music, because we know that music stimulates the brain and releases endorphins, so it actually enhances our mood. And flexible working arrangements, because I think organisations now have a very new understanding of what a workplace looks like. We'll have to take some notes on those. (laughs) So just on that, what's one thing that I could implement and perhaps other people 
that would actually have an impact on their teams or my team's mental health and well-being? I feel as though the key, I'm not saying this is right or it's not wrong, but I feel as though human connection is really important in the workplace. So it's in relation to starting conversations, connecting with the people that you work with. As mentioned, just having lighthearted activities to enhance the mood and the vibe in a workplace. And I also like the theory around starting the day on a positive note and ending the day on, the, on a positive note. So it's like the bookends of your workday. So when you walk into your workplace, is there music that's playing that's going to enhance your mood or are there positive mantras written on the whiteboard in, in the conference rooms, et cetera? Smashing out your workday and then also ending it on a high as well. So you're really solidifying those bookends of your workday. So you teach, I mean, just did a little bit of investigation, you teach a program on emotional fitness. What is emotional fitness and how important is it? Correct. So as part of the Elevate Wellbeing and Performance Program, we offer a suite of services and one of those services is the emotional fitness component. And Joe Parner is actually our expert in the area of emotional fitness and what Joe measures how he measures emotional fitness is by the quality of our relationships with uncertainty. Joe has identified that there are five main points to emotional fitness. The first one is identity, so how we define ourselves. The second one is life stages, so which stage are you at in the journey from ambition to meaning, so how are you progressing. The third stage is values. The fourth stage is emotional flexibility. So what we do know is that emotions don't respond to facts. So when we are placed in a specific situation, the emotional brain always responds quicker than the thinking brain, which is why emotions sort of drive our reactions. But the emotions actually don't respond to facts. It's the response to the interpretation of that fact. So how we actually interpret that. And then the, the fifth element there is perspective, so our worldview. So they're the five key components that Joe has identified in relation to emotional fitness. Okay. I, I bet you're busy with that in the workplace. So you're getting that out in the corporate area? We are, yes, yes. Joe's doing some amazing stuff leading that and also embedding it in, into our program as well. I know you regularly reviewing lots of research, study and results. Can you share something interesting perhaps that you've learned within the mental health field recently? Great question. And to tell you the truth, Matt, it's really hard to pinpoint one thing. I love to learn and I try and learn something new every day, whether it's something that's quite simplistic, it might just be a mantra that I've read or a memo, or it could be something more sophisticated from the academic research. But to pinpoint one thing is really challenging and in the well-being space every day we are evolving which is fantastic because 20 years ago when I started in this area of research it was really limited so to see all the research and organizations being proactive in this space now is really positive. I guess for me personally and professionally if I had to reflect on something, it would be in respect to a growth mindset. So it's about improving yourself both personally and professionally and always trying to evolve as an individual. Could you explain the difference between being stressed and being depressed? So stress, everyday stress, we all feel stressed at some stage in our life. It can be environmental. When we think about depression or compare that to depression, if we simplify that first, um, there are stages in our life when we all feel low at some stage. And 
it's clearly not concerning to think, well, I'm actually clinically depressed. So the differences between feeling low and actually identifying as being depressed is that the signs and symptoms need to be ongoing for at least two weeks. That is probably the main differentiating factor in relation to sort of just feeling low or in a bit of a slump as opposed to ongoing signs and symptoms. Is somebody that has fallen low and feeling that way, and let's say they come out of that in a month, is it easy to relapse or do you mentally sort of establish a way of drawing yourself out of that or is it very easy to relapse? I feel as though it's an ongoing process, to be quite honest, Matt. Whether you were talking about a, a specific mental health condition or just trying to evolve as an individual yourself, there will always be times when we are challenged in life. There will always be times when we get knocked down and obviously we try and get back up. And a lot of the research and the literature talks about resilience and how to become more resilient. And I feel as though as a society anyway, we have learned to do that really well going through you know, the longest lockdown in world history, even just reflecting on what's happening now in northern Victoria towards New South Wales and the floodings, what you are hearing is about the devastation, but you're hearing about connection, kindness of individuals and people chipping in to help each other out. And I feel as though even when times are tough, if you've got that social support network around you and people rallying together, it obviously makes the process a little more easy. Well, lastly, what would be some advice to parents or people who have loved ones that are suffering from, you know, whether it be depression or a mental health issue? Is there anything they can do from their point to help them pull out of that dark spot? The most prominent one, and obviously we've seen it in recent weeks and October is Mental Health Awareness Month, is um, reaching out, connecting, having a conversation more often than not, individuals might feel as though I'm the only one that's experiencing this. I feel very alone. But when we start to have an open conversation, we then realize that, oh, well, you know, there are a lot of people that are feeling the same way as me. So let's start to open the lines of communication. Let's enhance our mental health literacy and um, ensure that society has a really comprehensive understanding about mental health and well-being. And I feel as though we're doing that really well at the moment. Okay. Now, We've got five rapid-fire questions with rapid-fire answers to finish off the interview. What is your favourite mood-boosting activity? Exercise. What's something you're grateful for today? My family. Which book or movie has had the greatest impact on you? Brene Brown. What's your go-to takeaway meal? Anything I don't have to cook. <laughs> <laughs> if you were Prime Minister for the day, what's the first thing you'd change? Tough one. Um, I would embed a day of positivity. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time. That's all we have time for today. But thank you so much. You've been fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Building Teams podcast. For more information about Matt and Nun Media, visit nunmedia.com.au. Follow the show for future episodes and leaving a review or rating helps others find the podcast.